We're going to be in Acts today. We're going to continue in uh, Acts chapter 13. So um, if you don't want to look at the words on the screen, you can look in the Bible in your row, and it's going to be on page uh, 921 in the row in, uh, in the Bible in your row there. If you don't have a Bible that you like, um, or if uh, you know someone who needs a Bible, you're welcome to take that with you today, just as a gift from us. Um, make sure that uh, uh, you don't put it back down on the row and forget to take it with you when you leave. Uh, so while you're turning there, um, I'll share a story with you. In, um, in 2008, uh, there's an author uh, who's a New York Times uh, best-selling author and a journalist named Malcolm Gladwell. And um, he wrote a book called The Outliers. And basically, the premise of this book is that true greatness in someone's field or in someone's craft um, only comes about after about uh, 10,000 hours of deliberate and intentional practice. And so in order to prove this point, um, he, he pulls out a couple of uh, examples. And so one of the things he does is he, he shows how uh, the Beatles, before they were crowned one of the, the greatest rock bands in history, spent years and years and years playing these eight-hour sets in no-name clubs all over Europe where nobody knew who they were. And he uh, uses another example about Bill Gates. He says Bill Gates was, was privileged in one sense because at the time, most people didn't have desktop computers, but his parents got him one when he was 13. And so he spent most of his teenage years before he ever founded Microsoft learning how to code on a computer. And then he uses other examples like looking at the, the world's greatest composers. And, and he shows how for the first 10 years of the life of Every great major composer that you could think of, for the first 10 years, none of them had written a single work that had been considered a masterpiece. 10 years of writing music without any notoriety whatsoever. And so uh, this idea that he presents has kind of be become known as the uh, 10,000 hour rule. And so while there are always going to be exceptions to that, think your, your child prodigy, um, the greatness that we typically think about when we think of the world's great artists or great leaders or, or, or great uh, athletes is something that most of them had to spend years and years and years of silent diligence investing in before anybody ever knew who they were. Um, and, and, and his point is that, that when you sit back and you think about how someone becomes great, you shouldn't immediately say, well, they were just born that way and there's no way that I could ever achieve greatness or they just have some kind of creative genius that they were uniquely blessed with and there's no way that I could ever be like that. Now, to be clear, like if you're a 13-year-old and you're 6'5", like dude, put down the Xbox controller and pick up a basketball, like you, you might have some kind of genetic predisposition that would make you more inclined than, say, I would at being good at basketball. And it's not because I'm short. I just really don't look good in basketball shorts, okay? And that's fashion's a big thing. So, um, no, but, but the point is that, that outside of having that kind of an advantage, there's a unique correlation between someone's effectiveness and greatness and what it is that they do and the amount of time that they invest in what they intend to do. So as we come into Acts chapter 13 today, uh, what we're going to see is that there's this, this dynamic shift that takes place 
here in the Bible. Up, up until this point, the first 12 chapters of Acts that we've been in, it's all been about uh, Peter and about John and James and, and Stephen and, and Philip and these, these men who are ministering in and around Jerusalem and G- Judea and Samaria. And, and this morning, as we come into Acts chapter 13, um, we're going to see this dynamic shift to Paul. Now, we haven't heard a lot about Paul at this point. We saw back in Acts chapter 9 that um, he was blinded by the glory of Jesus on the road to Damascus, and his life was changed, and he learned who Jesus was, and he he gave his life toward the the end of, of communicating and sharing the gospel. Um, and, and we saw a couple weeks ago that, that Barnabas finds him and says, hey, Saul, I want you to come with me to Tarsus, or from Tarsus to Antioch. There's, there's work that we need to do there. But outside of those two things, we really haven't seen a lot about Saul or Paul here in the, uh, in the book of Acts so far. But starting today in Acts chapter 13, um, Paul is going to explode out of the gate. And the rest of this book is going to be about Paul. It's going to be about the work that he's doing as he's been commissioned by God to take the gospel and and proclaim it to the nations. And so he's going to begin this morning in Acts chapter 13, this first of three journeys to plant the churches and share the gospel in a way that will be the groundwork for, for the early church. But despite the fact that up until this point, we haven't really heard a lot about Paul yet, this really doesn't come out of nowhere. This really doesn't come out of nowhere. The, the events that take place today um, come about 14 years after his conversion on the road to Damascus. And what I want to submit to you this morning before we start in, uh, in, in verse 1 is um, what Paul has been doing for the last 14 years um, where, where this time that... that Everything else that we've been reading in Acts has been taking place. What Paul has been doing is he's been investing his 10,000 hours. Paul has been studying and learning and investing and praying and and being equipped so that when we come to um, chapter 13 here and we see Paul just kind of burst onto the scene, it's not like he was sitting on the sidelines and he was just like, Going, okay, God, what do you want me to do today? Well, now I want you to go ahead and start on all this stuff I called you to 14 years ago. No, Paul has been deliberately and intentionally putting in his hours of practice, getting ready for what the Lord would have him do, waiting for the day where the Lord would say, now it's time to go. And so, this morning, what I want us to do is see this commission, this pointing by God to Paul and saying, it's time for you to go. And what I think we're going to see today as we go through the Bible here is that, um, that Paul is, is being sent from this church in Antioch, which is this dynamic, unified community that's committed to the gospel. And what they're doing is they're taking Paul and they're saying, hey, we want you to go and, and preach the gospel faithfully as God has called you to do in hopes of creating more dynamic, unified communities that are committed to the gospel just as you've seen here in Antioch. And I hope for us this morning that in seeing that, it will help us understand how we can be the kinds of people and the kind of church that do the kinds of things that we're going to see here in this chapter. And that when we see the reactions that people have to the proclamation of the gospel, as Paul goes about, that it would be an encouragement to us that faithfulness is our priority 
And the response that people give is between them and the Lord. So let's pick up here in Acts chapter 13, and we'll read verses 1 through 3 to start this morning. It says, Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then, after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So the first thing I want us to see this morning is the catalyst that marks the beginning of Paul's ministry. So God had called him to this ministry, this ministry of of being sent out 14 years ago. So why is it now? Why in this moment is now the right time when this group of men is devoting themselves to prayer and to worship and to fasting that the Lord finally says, hey, Paul, it's time for you to go. Send these guys to do the work I called them to. Well, I think there's an obvious answer. And really, it's just an extension of what uh, Pastor John shared with us last week, where you've got a group of believers who are faithfully praying that the Lord's will would be done, and the Lord responds in kind by seeing to it that his will be done. He's, he's demonstrating for us, we're seeing here this, this, this propensity for God to declare what he wants to have take place. And as people seek the Lord and and ask for his will to be done, that the Lord steps in and says, yes, do this. My will will be done. I want you to go. It's time for you to go and and fulfill the work that I've called you to do. So that's the obvious answer. But I think there's, there's a less obvious answer, which I feel like is important for us to see because I think there's a lot of application for us uh, in it. Um, How many of you, when you were in uh, high school or college were forced to do group projects? So you can tell how I feel about group projects just by communicating to you that I was forced to do them. If you're the kind of person who goes, no, man, I love group projects. I think Wendy needs some more C3 Kids volunteers. That's a great way for you to, to let that disposition find a practical outlet here at church. Um, so during my senior year of high school, my government teacher uh, approached us at the beginning of the semester and, and said we were going to do this, this uh, semester-long project. Uh, where basically we would uh, team up with, with people, kind of a secret ballot thing um, of, of different political views, and we would work over the course of the semester to identify someone from our group who we were going to put forth as a, a, uh, a candidate for an election that we'd hold the next uh, semester. And, and our goal over that first semester was to kind of come up with a campaign strategy and figure out what our platform was going to be and develop the ads and you know, do all of this work. Um, and I'm just going to save you a lot of, uh, details and cut to the chase. Um, my group was a, was an absolute mess. It was just the worst. I mean, it was one of those situations where you're sitting back and going, is there any possible combination of people in this room that could be any worse than the combination of people that I got stuck with? It was just a really, really awful experience. And so being the strategist that I am, I decide I'm going to go to my teacher and propose a, a strategy for how we could rearrange the groups in a way that was much more favorable to me. Um, surprisingly, she didn't agree with my proposal. Uh, but what she did, I thought was really fascinating. She said why don't you get together with all of the other people from your group after school and just get to know each other a little bit better? Because my guess is that if you can stop seeing each other for your differences 
and see each other for who you are as people, it may make it a little bit easier for you to work together over the course of the semester. Isn't it amazing what we could do before Facebook? Like just have a conversation with someone and go, we're different, can we just work through this and not get angry about it or use keyboard courage to say stupid things that we can't ever take back? So, so guess what happened? We got together and guess what happened when we got together? We realized, okay, you're different than me. You believe different things than me. You approach things differently than me. First of all, you're a slacker and like, dude, you seriously, like we're, we're all carrying your weight. But also, you know, we can work through these differences and we can come out on the other side with, with a great team and a great project. And so we not only found ways to work together, not just because we wanted a good grade, but because we began to value and see each other for who we really were. And uh, by the time the semester was over, we had actually, many of us, become pretty good friends that would, would get together and do things even outside of school. And so why tell you that? Why tell you that story? Um, you have to remember here at the beginning of Acts chapter 13 where Paul was when we first met him. Paul, when we first met him 14 years ago, is a Pharisee of Pharisees. He's zealous for the law. He is so unwilling to even consider the idea that the Jewish faith could accommodate this radical group of Christians that he sets his mind to murdering and sending off to prison anybody who believes anything different than himself. His entire world was built on this homogenous Jewish culture that was inflexible and strict and rigid and judicious, and he was in the thick of it. He was the poster boy of what it meant to be a, a model Jewish Pharisee. And the thought that he would be the one to take the gospel to the Gentiles, the ones who were unclean, the ones who worship false gods, who are polytheists, who are pagans, who are outside of the covenants and the promises of Israel, to him would have been laughable. There's no way he would go to them. And so for Acts 13 to happen, as we'll see this morning, and for Paul to be able to fulfill this commission, there are some serious prejudices and walls that had to be broken down. Paul had to learn a deep love and compassion for the people that he was called to go to. He had to learn a love for the lost. He had to embrace the mission field that he had been called to. He had to stop looking at the differences of the people that he was supposed to be working for and instead see them how Christ saw them. And if he was unable or unwilling to do that, none of this ever would have happened. And so when you see this group of men gathered here in verse 1, what you see is that Paul had community with this super diverse group of men that, that you would never have imagined in a million years would have, would have been hanging out together outside of having Jesus in common. You've got Barnabas, who's this wealthy, respected Jew from Cyprus, You've got Simeon, who was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene, both of whom most historians believe are, are black men from North Africa. And then you've got Paul, who's a murderer and a Pharisee that the Jewish leaders hate. And then you've got Menaean, who's a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch. Herod the Tetrarch is the guy who beheaded John the Baptist and who high-fived Pilate whenever they were handing Jesus off to be killed. 
He was the one that took his brother Philip's wife as his own wife, which would have made a really awkward family reunion, right? Like just super awkward, unless she was a bad wife and then maybe his brother Philip would have been like, see what I'm saying, dude? Like, I tried to give you a warning, but you know, come on. But, but check it out. It says he's a lifelong friend of that guy. So you've got, you've got black men, Jews, alienated Jews, people who are hanging out with these almost dictator-like people and being friends with them, and they're all together loving Jesus and loving each other in common. It's the most eclectic group of people I think we've seen in the book of Acts so far. And that's evidence, even though we don't see how Paul gets to that point, that when we come to Acts 13, he's in a place where he's looking at people around him who are so different than him. And he's saying, these are my people. This is who I want to do life with. When I am being transparent and vulnerable before the Lord, I want to be doing that in worship and prayer with these kind of people. And so that's the group sitting around that, that Paul is commissioned from. And so when we talk about the catalyst, what causes God to, to say this 14 years has gone by, now is the time to go. It's because as Paul is sitting in this group, the Lord is looking at that group and says, this, this is how I want to send my people out. This is the image I want burned in your mind, Paul, about what the church is. This is what I want you to think about when you go to people who are totally unlike you, totally unlike your upbringing, and ask them to place their hope in Jesus. I want this image of this people to be your catalyst. Remember this as you go. And here's why that's important. Because the result of all that Paul is about to do from this point forward, the purpose that God had in mind for him wasn't just to go out and, and preach the gospel. If you remember his commission in Acts 9, it was, you will go and be a witness to me before Jews and Gentiles and kings. As Paul's going to write about in Galatians 3, God's intention for, for him was to help create the church, one body in which there is neither Jew nor Greek. There's not slave or free. There isn't male or female. We don't look at each other based on our external characteristics. We look at each other the way that Jesus sees us, as sinners in need of a savior. And that is unbelievably uh, leveling because there's no amount of money, there's no social economic status, there's no race, there's no background, there's no upbringing that makes you any more or less predis predispositioned or advantaged when it comes to receiving God's grace. Paul had to experience and live in the reality of what God was leading him to go and invite other people to do because it wasn't going to be easy. I mean, this hasn't changed in 2,000 years. Getting people who are different to coexist happily in a body of people to do meaningful things, like that wasn't easy for them. And I would say it's probably even harder for them than it is for us nowadays because we've at least learned to be polite and you can't kill somebody just because you don't like them without getting in too much trouble, right? Like back then that didn't matter. So, so getting people with different backgrounds to coexist in meaningful relationships it's going to be challenging as we go through the book of Acts. And it hasn't gotten any easier for us as well. So what does that mean for us? I think the first thing that we learn from the sending of Paul here is that there are ways that God wants to grow you that only happen in community. 
There are ways that God wants to grow you that only happen in community. This step of obedience that Paul and Barnabas take here, the maturation in, in Paul's love for others and the abandoning of his prejudices and, and, and this, this dynamic in which he's sent is, is birthed out of knowing and being transparent with these men and with others and letting their relationships with each other extend beyond getting beers and asking how's work. Like it was just more than that. It had to be more than that if they were going to be equipped and sent to do what they were called to do. This group of men is dialed into the Lord and to each other, and they're ready to listen to what God has to say to them. So church, people in community are going to be different than you. They're going to see things differently. They're going to process things differently. They're going to handle things differently. They're going to even believe some things differently. But with Christ in common, those relationships can grow and challenge us. And it's out of this, this challenge, out of this growth, out of these interpersonal relationships that are intertwined in deep, purposeful, meaning relationships in the church in Antioch that Paul and Barnabas are sent. And I'd submit to us this morning that there are ways that God needs to grow us as a church and there are ways that God wants to grow you as a person that can only happen when you have people in your life who know you well enough to be able to see where you're missing it and encourage you to go in a different direction, to see where you're doing well, and ask you for an encouragement. And collectively, to be seeking the Lord together so that greater work can be done than what any one of us could accomplish on our own. So I think the second thing that there is to see for us here in the sending of Paul is that a healthy, prayerful church is concerned with taking the gospel to others. Let's be clear here. The leaders in the church in Antioch receive this encouragement from the Holy Spirit, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called him. And it says in the next verse, then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on him. They didn't just hear the Lord say, hey, set these guys aside and go, oh, I guess that's clear. All right, you guys go, see ya. No, they prayed and they fasted. Why is that? Because this call that they received was not an easy call. For all they knew, they were laying hands on Barnabas and Saul so that they could go and be murdered. Paul knew when he was commissioned by the Lord back in Acts chapter nine, that that there was gonna be much suffering that he was gonna endure. Jesus had told him that. He didn't know how long, he didn't know when. And as we go through Acts here, we're gonna see that Paul's path is never easy. It's never easy. He's left for dead. He's shipwrecked. You can, we'll read at the end of Acts all the, the, the troubles that, that, that he's gone through. These men look at Barnabas and Saul as trusted friends who are helping the church in Antioch tremendously. And they say, rather than keep you here and keep you safe and benefit from your wisdom and your teaching and your authority, we so believe that the gospel must go to the nations that we will lay our hands upon you and send you out with our blessing and freedom to go do whatever the Lord has called you to do. Because they saw the need that existed in the world and they responded in obedience. So a healthy, prayerful church is concerned with taking the gospel to others. And we'll unpack that a little bit more this morning as we continue. But now I want to, to focus on what happens now that they're sent out. So Paul and Barnabas are sent out. And the rest of this chapter is going to show us three key things that transpire. What we're going to do is we're going to explore the first. I'm going to mention the next two. And then we're going to kind of talk about the, the, uh, the consequence of all of them 
to, uh, to wrap things up. So take a look back in Acts chapter thir- uh, 13 with me and let's see this first event that takes place starting in verse 4. It says, so, they, so being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews and they had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who had summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elemas, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, just to be clear, these are the same guys. One is a nickname, one is his actual name. Um, But Elemas, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately, mist and darkness fell upon him and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed. And when he saw what had occurred, when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. So there should be a little map up here for you just so you can kind of get a concept of where they're going from Seleucia to Cyprus. Uh, They leave for Cyprus, which is Barnabas's old stomping grounds. And we actually see that what they do is they immediately go and they begin proclaiming Jesus in the synagogues. This is actually going to be Paul's custom. Anytime he goes to a new city, he's going to find the synagogue. He's going to begin teaching there. Um, The synagogue um, is kind of a Jewish uh, cultural center. If you've ever lived in a a small town or community that had kind of a community center where everyone met up and, you know, did things, it's it's same kind of idea. They would get together at the synagogue to, uh, to hear the law, to study the law, to pray. And, um, and that was where Paul and Barnabas went. And that will be where they continue to go. And that kind of makes sense, right? The Messiah of the Jewish people had come and they needed to hear it. But it also makes sense because if you're going to go share the gospel with other people, a good place to start might be with the people who are inclined to hear it, right? Like if you have a group of people searching the scriptures for answers, that might be a better place to start than rolling the dice at a biker rally or in the middle of a business meeting. Okay, not that bikers don't need the gospel, they do too. I'm just saying, like, if you know, hey, there are people who want to know about this, that might be a good place to start. Um, I mean, I would hope that none of you would be sitting in the middle of a of, of financial meeting and going, hey, I know we're getting ready to discuss the Q3 numbers, but boss, just give me a second. I need to stand up and just kind of pull everyone in the room. Uh, just a quick question. How many of you, if you died today and stood before God and he asked you why he should let you into heaven, would be able to give him an answer that sounded something like this, blah, 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 you know? Like, not only would you, like, lose the admiration and respect and whatnot of your peers and make things super, super awkward, uh, but you might lose your job. So just saying, like, that's not the right avenue necessarily. So um, they go to this place where people are interested and intrigued about what the gospel means, what the scriptures mean. And, uh, and just a side note on this, I think when we start talking about evangelism, people psych themselves up. Like, I don't know how many of you guys were youth group kids. I was a youth group kid, and we used to do 
um, you know, contagious Christian evangelism explosion, all the rest of the stuff. And it's just like this idea, oh my God, I've got to be able to like go into any place and be ready to sit down with someone and share the gospel with them on the spot and hope that they're like, oh yeah, that makes perfect sense. What do I need to do to be saved? Like that was just the impression that I had. And, and the reality is that there may be times where God calls you to do that. But most of the time, sharing the gospel and evangelizing doesn't look like walking into Starbucks and going, you, you know, and like going to sit down and, you know, like the pattern that we see here is that these men are going into places where they know that there are questions. They know that there are needs. They're going to places that they know. I mean, this is Barnabas's old stomping grounds. They're not going out of their way to make things awkward. They're going to where needs are and they're correctly and rightly applying the truth of the gospel to those situations. And the reality is that you probably know people in your life right now who, if you try to have a gospel, marriage is in, in crisis, but you may have other people in your life who are struggling or hurting. Marriage is in, in crisis. There's hard times with kids. They're out of work. You've got someone who's, who's experiencing something that, that they have questions about, and they're, they're looking for answers. They're trying to say, what do I do with this? And those are great opportunities for us to step in and say, hey, in the midst of feeling the weight of the brokenness of the world around you, can I just share with you the one who has come to heal the broken things and, and, and give you hope in the midst of all of this and, and not negate what you're going through as though Jesus is going to make all of that better right away. He may not, but maybe I can give you hope on the opposite end of whatever it is you're facing or someone who's struggling or having questions in their faith, or your kids, as they're trying to figure out what life means and, and how, to, how to make things work. Or if you're a student at school and you've got um, people who are discussing religious things and current events, you have an ability to use the opportunities that you have with friends and people around you to inject the truth of the gospel in ways that aren't awkward or weird. And so as Paul and Barnabas go about the synagogues, um, they finally end up getting summoned here by this proconsul, the governor of Cyprus named Sergius Paulus, who wants to hear what they have to say. And as they do, this, this Jewish court magician named Bar-Jesus, or Elimus, um, his other name is saw here, uh, begins to oppose Paul and his message in an attempt to steer the proconsul away from the faith. And so Paul steps forward in the power of the Holy Spirit here, and he opposes him, and the Lord blinds bar Jesus for a short time, which should immediately make us think back to what Paul's experience was like. What was it like when Paul was confronted with the gospel for the first time? He was blinded so that he couldn't see, so that instead of focusing on what he could see, he might be aware of the truth that he needed to see on the inside. And the same thing happens here to bar Jesus. And the miracle of these events is so incredible that it leads the proconsul to faith in Christ. So what do we see from that? We see something here that we'll see again in this chapter and then throughout the rest of the book of Acts as well. You've got this, this Jewish false prophet who obviously has made some kind of steps to muddy his faith, but you've got this man who at one point in time knew the truth of the scriptures, understood the consequence of the Old Testament Messiah, and instead of embracing the truth, rejects it. And you've got this pagan governor who instead of rejecting the gospel, instead embraces it. And unfortunately, this is a pattern that we're going to see time and time again. So that's event number one in Acts 3. Event two happens on the way. So now they leave from Cyprus in verse uh, 13, which we're not going to read. And they make their way to Perga 
in Pamphylia, and they ultimately are going to make their way to uh, Pisidian Antioch. And once they land, there's this tiny line, which is not going to be on the screen, but in um, verse uh, 13 is going to say that uh, John left them and returned to Jerusalem. So that's John Mark, the writer of the Gospel of Mark. And uh, he's going to leave and go back to Jerusalem. And we're going to see this later in Acts, but this is something that Paul took incredible issue with and became a significant source of conflict between uh, him and Barnabas. And so despite that being an issue at the time, it doesn't derail the mission here. It's just important for us to note because it is a, a key event in Acts that, um, that, uh, that we see uh, take place here. And so the third event, the first event was uh, this, this proclamation of the gospel to Sergius Paulus. The second is... Uh, John Mark leaving them. And the third event is what we're going to see here in uh, the latter part of the chapter and where we'll spend the rest of our time this morning. And uh, basically starting in verse 16, Paul gets up and he he begins to give this gospel message. And we're not going to read it this morning, although it's a really great history lesson and and it gives a lot of context for for what Paul's gospel message uh, looks like. But what I do want us to see is how the people respond when he is finished preaching. So we're going to look in Acts chapter 13 and we're going to pick up in verse 38 and we're going to see uh, the close of Paul's message and we're going to see their response. So Paul says there, or uh, the Bible says there in verse 38, let it be known to you therefore brothers that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said about in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish. For I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. Uh, one of the things that I do in my, uh, my job is sales. Um, not a big thing, but one of the things I do is sales. Um, and mainly whenever we go to conferences, trade shows, although sometimes there's sales calls and, and different things that we'll do tracking down leads. And uh, one of the things that is most frustrating to me when I am going through the sales process with someone is that there are times where you get in a conversation with someone and it becomes incredibly obvious right away, I'm selling something that you need. You need what it is that we're talking about, and you know it as well. And so, um, you, you know, you're giving them the pitch, you, you're kind of seeing this unfold, and very quickly as it does, the, the pitch goes from what it is that you're selling to how what it is you're selling is going to make their life or their business better. Because at the end of the day, it doesn't matter what it is, I want to know how does it impact me? How is it going to make my life better? How is it going to make my business better? And sometimes when this happens, um, it's a no-brainer for, for the person that I'm talking with. And, you know, we close the sale right in the moment and move forward, and it's fantastic. But other times, there's this struggle that takes place. And basically, it goes like this. I'm telling you about a service that I can provide you. In order for you to embrace the service that you are selling to me, I, as the business owner, have to admit that there's either something I can't do on my own, Or I have to realize that I have not done a good enough job at it and I need you to do it for me instead. Which is incredibly humbling and for some people, a pill that they are totally unwilling to swallow. 
Um, and, and the process of mentally getting there um, feels a little bit like uh, this, this game of tug and war where I'm just like, come on, like seriously, like you are failing at this miserably. Let us just come in and help you. And they just can't mentally get over the fact that they need to let go of something and let us provide the service instead. And so sometimes when these conversations go that way, um, there's, never, there's never a sale that happens. Sometimes it takes months and weeks of calling and tracking down and sending emails and trying to schedule calls and you know, pushing the envelope a little bit further and a little bit further, a little bit further. But as interested as they are in the moment, they just can't let go. They can't admit that they need what it is that we're selling. And so I think that's what you see here in Acts chapter 13. Paul finishes preaching the gospel to these, these Jews in, in Pisidian Antioch. He gets up in the, in the synagogue. He proclaims this amazing gospel message. And, and instead of seeing the people like we've seen in Acts come in, in droves and, and say, what must we do to be saved? Instead, what you see is them uh, basically say, hey, can you come back next week? It'd be great. Like, can you just come back next week and talk to us about this a little bit more? I mean, Paul has just finished showing them that, that as we saw back in verse um, 38 and 39, it says, this man, this Jesus who I've just finished showing you, he is the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament promises that you come here every single week and study. He's, he's the one that you have been looking at, the one that, that the scriptures have been pointing to, and he's the one who can justify you and free you from all of the stuff that you could never be freed from in the law of Moses. I mean, the translation of what he's saying is this. He's, he's looking at them and he's saying, guys, listen to me. Jews and, and converts to Judaism who are here, you have spent your entire life in this broken cycle of failure and feeling bad and waking up and trying harder and seeking forgiveness and then waking up the next day and failing again and trying harder to do better and seeking forgiveness and doing that on and on and on and on and on and it never ends. That's not going to stop. You don't have the willpower or the ability to be perfect. You can never keep the law. Stop trying. It's hopeless. You cannot muscle your way through your struggles and try hard enough to be obedient. You can't fool yourself and everyone else around you long enough thinking that if you just pretend to be holy and you pretend to be good enough, you can fake it until you make it. He says, here's what you can do. You can open up your eyes and just see that you can't do it on your own. You can see that what you're doing isn't working and it's not gonna work in the future and you can run to the one person who can give you grace and forgiveness and freedom from that burden. You can run to the one person who doesn't look at you with condemnation for your failures and your inadequacies or disappointment for your inability to do better. But you can run to the one who says instead, hey, I've got this. I've got you. Come find forgiveness and rest. And if you're in the same boat today as, as these people and you're like, I am so tired of trying harder to be better. It's exhausting me because I can't do it on my own and I still wake up every morning and have this gnawing sense that I'm not quite right, that things aren't quite where they're supposed to be. Don't do what these people in 
in Acts 13 do? Don't say, nice message, bro. Man, that's super interesting. That's great. Hey, man, can you please come back next week and tell me more? I mean, did some of these people trust and believe? Yes, but for the majority, they fell into the warning of verse 41. I'm doing a work in your days, a work that you won't believe even if someone tells it to you. Don't do that. See the hope in Christ. See the burden of your sin and stop fighting. If that's you today, even as a believer who's fallen into sin, don't sit idly on that and and, and just wait until next week. Whether you're owning your sin and your need for Jesus the first time today or the 500th time today, Don't see the forgiveness that he extends. Don't see the opportunity to be freed from the weight of your sin and the inability to perform righteously enough and say, that's nice, but not today. Come find me or another leader, another pastor on the side of the room after the sermon. We'd love to talk with you about that. And so that's the way they respond at first. So so what happens next? What's the consequence of that? What's the consequence of them going and preaching this gospel and then stepping back? Looking back at Acts, Paul and Barnabas come back the next week as they requested, and and the whole town is there. News travels fast. So let's look in verse 44. It says, The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them, and went to Iconium, and the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. The message of the gospel shared, and as soon as the Jews see how the people respond, they get jealous. They don't want the Gentiles to respond to Jesus. They get angry that the promises that were given to them are now being extended to those who are unlike them, who, who are people that haven't spent their entire lives trying to please God, who are outside of the covenants of God, outside of the people of Israel. And so they reject the message and they reject the messengers and they stir up dissension and persecution against Paul and Barnabas until they're driven out of the area. But not before many of the Gentiles hear the word of the Lord and respond in faith. So what do we learn from that? I think there's two things for us to see from that and then we're done this morning. The first is this, don't substitute, don't trade the relationship for the religion. The problem that the Jews had, and this extends way beyond this chapter, is that they were so entrenched in the rituals of Judaism that they lost sight of what they were doing in the first place. It wasn't so that they could perform religiously. They weren't doing what they were doing so that they could pat themselves on the back for being good religious Jews. The purpose of the the law, the purpose of the Old Testament was to point people to the need for the Savior to come, for the Messiah to arrive and make all things right. And sadly, the same thing can happen today with us. We can get so busy playing church and going through the motions and and just getting into the cycle of saying, if I just show up here and, and if I just say the right things and if I become an active participant in the Christian subculture and I eat at Chick-fil-A at least twice a week, like I'm good. I'm doing my Christian thing. Like I'm I'm right where I need to be. And the reality is that there's a there's a capacity, hear me on this church. 
There's a capacity to be religious without the relationship. And the moment that that happens, you enter into a very tricky situation where everything in your life can look right. But if everything in your life that looked religious was stripped away, there would be zero relationship with God that would cause you to sit back and and be able to make it. Look, I've been there before. I'm not standing up here like, oh yeah, man, I've been like killing my quiet times for the last 13 years. Nailed it. There are months in my life where I just ignore Jesus and I coast on my spiritual fumes. And what stinks as a, as a, as a believer and, and, and for most of us who've grown up in the faith and developed some degree of maturity is that sometimes you can coast on your spiritual fumes long enough that you can trick yourself into thinking you're doing okay and everyone else around you as well. All the while, it's, you haven't fed yourself in a month. I mean, think about it. Like, if, if this is called the word of God, the, the bread of life, Jesus is the bread of life, if we starve ourselves from this for a month at a time, how would, how would that be any different than if we starved ourselves of food for a month? You'd be hungry, you'd be irritable, you'd be cranky, you wouldn't be well. We can't substitute our religious actions for the relationship that we are individually called to have with the Lord. And the people in the synagogue forgot that a long time ago. They had a great relationship with people in the synagogue. I'm sure they all hung out together. Their friends went to school together. They had similar interests. And, and yet the one thing that should have been of most interest to them was something that they had long forgotten. I don't want us to be a church that can come together and like each other and have good relationships and go to Deacon Baldy's and serve in kids together and, and, and pretend that just because we have community that we have a relationship with the Father that is underlaying that community or underlaying what it is that we do. Don't trade the relationship for the religion. And the second thing is this, don't keep the goodness of God to yourself. The response by the Jews was jealousy. Jealousy because they saw the Gentiles taking something that they felt was theirs. But the error in that is clear. Salvation was never meant for the Jews alone. They were always to be a people who proclaimed the gospel to the nations. They just lost sight of the fact that there were people beyond their walls that needed what they had access to. And church, as I look around this room, there are people who are, who are living in community here. Like you've got really good, solid, purposeful, meaningful, Jesus-filled relationships with each other. There are some of you who've, who've experienced brokenness or hurt in your marriage and you've seen how Jesus can heal and restore things. There are some of you in here who have, have managed to parent well, maybe by chance, maybe by luck, maybe by reading a lot of books, whatever the case. And, and the world around us, outside of these walls, the people you bump into at Target, the people that you talk to at lunch, the people who work with you in, in your offices, there are many people outside these walls who don't have meaningful relationships with people. They're lonely. Or they're experiencing difficulty and brokenness in their marriage. Or they're having a hard time with their kids. Or they're experiencing you know, the weight and consequence of sin. And you have a story to tell them about how Jesus can make broken marriages better about how he can take difficulties in parenting and turn them around for God's glory. You have an ability to look at people who don't have meaningful relationships and say, I have life-giving friendships in my life. And I think a lot of times as, as, as the church, it can be really easy to keep the good things that God has given us to ourselves and say, well, if I invite someone else into these relationships, my relationships won't be the same. I'm busy And I've got a lot going on, so I know this person needs help in their marriage, but maybe someone else will do it. I see that they're having a hard time with their kids. 
I may not have much to offer, but there's something I can say. But I don't want to go and, and talk to them in case I offend them, which is just a really holy way of excusing yourself from doing something that God may be calling you to do. Um, the reality is that, that we can very quickly become very protective of the good things that we experience of God. And when we see the need that other people have around us, we can excuse away our need to include them in that. That's what the Jews had done. They had access to the God of the universe. And rather than caring for the Gentiles around them, they kept it to themselves. While I'd love for the whole city to be excited about Jesus to the point that they come here to listen, like we saw in Acts chapter 13, it's just not likely going to happen. I think it's going to require us being like Paul and Barnabas and going to those in need instead of waiting for them to show up here to us. Here's the good news for this uh, in all of this for us. You don't have to spend 10,000 hours practicing your faith as a Christian before you can be effective and obedient to what God has called you to do. The reality is you have access to the perfect son who for eternity has been practicing faithfulness to the father and obedience to the father. And he promises to be with you as you step out in obedience. There are a lot of things we threw out today. And and if there's just one thing I want us to land on, it would be this. We can't control the response of the world around us to the gospel any more than Paul could. In fact, you look in Romans, he wanted a different response from the Jews, but he didn't get it. But we can see that what God empowered him to do in this chapter is go out and participate in the work that God was doing to save people. And that's something that we can participate in as well. The will that God had for Paul that he had declared to him 14 years before he took action is something that was declared to us 2,000 years ago. We're called as we're going to make disciples. You don't need a voice out of heaven to speak to you to tell you to walk in obedience to that. It's already there. Your call and your step is simply to walk in that obediently and to use the relationships and the community that you have in this church to pursue those in faithfulness. Let's be that kind of a church. Let's be a church like Antioch. Let's be people like Paul and Barnabas who go and proclaim, not worrying about how people respond, but making sure that we ourselves have first responded in obedience to the call of God. Let's pray.